What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Not Gonna Lie. I'm your host, Jonathan Terry, and I'm happy to be joined here with Dave Burkett. Dave, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. So we're here in our next installment of the Summer School Series, and today we're going to cover uh, one of the worst teams in NFL history. And Dave actually has uh, a lot of experience with this team, as it was the first team uh, that he covered for a full season, the, the Detroit Lions, in their 2008 season. So, Dave, do you mind just talking a little bit about, I guess, your perspective of what it was like, at the beginning at least, uh, when you were brought on to cover the Lions for the first full season? Yeah, so I, I uh, sort of started early in the season in 2007. And uh, if, you, if you remember back, the Lions went 6-2 and two that year. They, they sort of... They really tanked on the stretch. They went one and seven in the second half of the year, but they, you know, they finished seven and nine. And I think a lot of people going into 2008, um, not that they thought the Lions were going to be great, but they certainly didn't expect going 16. And like you said, that was my first full season on the beat. Um, you know, they had Kelvin Johnson at the time. Uh, you know, there were there were some rays of hope, I guess, or you thought there were entering the season at least. Um, you know, Dante Culpepper was still around, or he, I guess, he came later in the season but John Kitten was still around you know and he was he was coming off a decent year so um but the way they just started out and, and as the season progressed um I think everyone just realized that the talent in the locker room was just not up to par for an NFL team frankly and that's how you know you kind of you felt bad as the season was going on it wasn't like these were bad guys it wasn't like people weren't trying certainly there were some things that contributed to it you know the Lions put John Kitna on injured reserve early that year and that was you know he was their best quarterback he was their best hope for for winning um you know he had a back injury that he was going to be back from at some point but um after the Lions fired Martin Mayhew I guess it was the the original version of of the process and tanking you know they uh Mm -hmm. they were trying to get that number one pick in the draft and get a quarterback that would solve their problems and it just ended up that it seemed like every single game they lost by double digits, and that's just, you know, aside from, uh, I think it was the, the two Vikings games, one time when Orlovsky ran out of the back of the end zone, mm-hmm. uh, just about every other game was decided by by 10 or more points, and uh, you just, as this, the season wore on, you sort of just looked around the locker room and knew that a lot of these guys were probably playing their last NFL game just based on, you know, the talent they had in, in that room. Yeah, and, and this season... Uh, had a lot more building up to it than just what happened on the field in 2008. Uh, so I want to start all the way back to where I think most diehard Lion fans attribute their problems, uh, the curse of Bobby Lane. So Bobby Lane was a, was a star quarterback in the 50s, uh, who very talented, but he'd always show up drunk to games, and then after the games he'd somehow find himself getting arrested, bailed out, and then ready to play the next day. And the, the Lions were tired of Bobby Lane's antics, and so they signed another quarterback and split time with Bobby Lane, which made him pretty upset. And then later that season, he broke his leg, uh, and the other quarterback led them to a championship. And in the offseason, Lane was traded to Pittsburgh. And legend has it, he told the Lions that they wouldn't win another title for 50 years. Uh, and a lot of, of fans believe that this is what's led to the Lions' only winning one playoff game in these last 50 years how uh how logical do you think that this curse could be like is there a chance that that bobby lane did something to the lions no i don't think so look i i don't think i think most fans look at 
uh, at least Lions fans, they sort of blame it on the forward ownership more than they do the curse of Bobby Lane. I mean, certainly people have, have talked about that, and that was a, a long rumored thing. I don't know about Bobby, you know, getting arrested all the time. Um, you know, certainly he liked to party. You know, we sat down with the, the 1957 team, the last Lions team, to, to win a championship uh, two years ago, I think it was now, uh, the, the surviving members of it at least. And, you know, they, uh, man, I, I think it, it was crazy for them to think that they were the last team that had done it too. But you're right, Tilden Rope came in uh, that championship game and, and sort of led them. You know, Lane was definitely the heart and soul of that offense, swashbuckling quarterback. Um, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in, in franchise history and in a team that uh, led the Lions to, to a title earlier in the decade. Um, and so, look, they, you know, they, they had their issues that year. They actually had a – he had his issues, I should say. They, they won the championship that year. They actually had a pretty good uh, year a few years later in talking to Joe Schmidt. Um, it was one of the early 60s teams that ended up losing to the Packers. He thought that team was just as good, if not better, than the 57 team. And, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned the, the Ford family of ownership. I, I think that's where a lot of Lions fans place the blame. William Clay Ford bought the team. Um, on the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated and the, the team has been in the family since and look frankly fans are somewhat misguided in thinking that the Ford family didn't spend money or um, you know some of the, the other issues that, that they feel led to, to the team I think it was just a matter of being loyal to the wrong people too long and to spin it all the way forward back to 2008 you know that's part of what the case was there it was that William Clay Ford was loyal to Matt Millen for, for far too long. You know, Millen did not do a good job as general manager. Uh, that was essentially his, his title. Um, he got a contract extension after Joey Harrington was sort of forced upon him. Um, you know, they just they botched a number of drafts, a number of moves, and it was early in that 2008 season that they fired uh, Millen. And, and so, again, that's sort of, you know, you want to come full circle. 57 was the last year they won it, and they had some Hall of Fame players on that team really good players and Bobby Lane was angry going out the door and they sort of you know floated in no man's land for a couple of years and they had a good year when they couldn't get past the Packers back when only one team you know made the playoffs and then after the Ford family bought the team uh, I think it's true that they were just far too loyal Mr. Ford was far too loyal to the wrong people for for too long a period of time yeah yeah and let's go ahead and talk about Matt Millen for a little bit so Matt Millen was hired uh, by William Clay Ford, like you mentioned. Uh, but he was this very successful player in the 1980s. He won four Super Bowls, two with the Raiders, one with the 49ers, and then one with the Redskins. But when a lot of teams, um, I guess, started to take notice of him was when he was in the booth commentating. Uh, what was it? What was his style of commentating that made fans and, I mean, different executives so interested in listening to what he had to say? Yeah, well, I mean, the uh, the Millen hire and, and when he was in the booth, that was probably, uh, that was definitely a little before my time. But um, I know that, look, I mean, he's a smart guy. He knows football. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a little bit of a panache to him, I guess, you know. Like, uh, the Lions actually had tried to hire him a year or two before they, they ended up hiring him after the, uh, the 2000 season. I think it was 98. Um, Bill Ford Jr. had reached out to him, maybe 99. And, uh, you know, the Millens earned those requests. I don't know if the Lions were quite ready to, to make the leap. And then um, the 2000 season, you know, the Lions, if you remember, Barry Sanders, he left after the 99 season, or before the 99 season, right before the start of training camp, kind of mm -hmm. surprised everyone. Um, 
and he, he retired, walked away from the game. The Lions still made the playoffs that year. Uh, you know, miraculously enough, they started eight and four, lost their last four games back into the playoffs, but they made the playoffs. The next year, Bobby Ross retires midseason. He was sort of fed up, you know, didn't like the direction of everything, you know, how, how things were going on the field, you know, the way the players were responding. Gary Muller came in, um, rallied the troops a little bit. They had a shot to make the playoffs in the last game. They lost on the last second, 54-yard field goal by Paul Edinger. And mm-hmm. it was that moment that sort of spurred the Lions to finally, to Bill Ford Jr. once again, say, hey, you know, we got Matt Millen. You know, he'll come. William Clay Ford, the owner at the time, to say, all right, let's do it. And uh, next thing you know, the Lions are, are embarking on the worst eight-year stretch in NFL history with Matt Millen as their GM. Yeah, so, so let's go ahead and, and take it year by year. So... 2002, the first year that uh, that Matt Millen was in charge of the Lions, they went two and 14. Uh, you know, it was expected to be a rebuilding year. It wasn't expected to be the easiest job in the world, and Matt Millen knew that when he when he signed up for it. But they drafted Joey Harrington, um, which kind of kicked off their slew of, of bad draft picks, like you mentioned. Joey Harrington never threw over 20 touchdowns. Uh, in the next year, he, he led the league in interceptions, and he never won more than six games in an entire season as a starting quarterback. Uh, was there, did you see room for improvement with the Lions during that time, or uh, was it just, just going to take time? What was your perspective during that time? Yeah, I mean, I was a young guy, so I, I don't know that I was watching it with any real perspective. Um, you know, just sort of following it, being around the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you knew they were bad really quite understand why they were bad, I guess. I mean, at least the, the situation I was in, like you said, 2001 was a was a terrible year, and, and they went, you know, 2-14. and 14. But, you know, and, and their luck, and, and I guess it, it didn't matter in the end because the number one pick was, was David Carr, but their luck was, you know, they that's when the expansion teams came in. They picked third in the draft that year, and that's, you know, they, they ended up Harrington. Um, and that was a little bit of a forced pick, but, you know, the Lions in 2002, they were opening a new stadium, Ford Field. I think ownership wanted, uh, you know, a quarterback to hang his hat on there a little bit to be the face of the franchise. Um, you know, and and frankly, the Lions had, they had been looking for a quarterback for a long time. I mean, even in the 90s when they were successful with Barry, you know, they cycled through a lot of different quarterbacks, Eric Kramer and Rodney Pete and Charlie Batch and Scott Mitchell. And so it was the one position that always eluded this team. And again, you know, I didn't, at the time, I'm sort of following from afar, so I don't quite understand it, but I, I do get the uh, the need to have that quarterback now and how if you don't have it, you know, you're always in NFL no man's land in a lot of ways. And so, you know, the Lions were trying to, to solve that, that problem that they had. And, Obviously, Harrington did not work out. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, he had, uh, you know, a very lackluster career in Detroit. Um, you know, the Lions finally got rid of him. And, and like I said, they it looked like when they might have a little bit of success when John Kitna came aboard. Um, Kitna wasn't great by any means, but he was, you know, he was a guy that could keep his head above water. And, and uh, when they made that regime change in 2008, and John had a bad back, and I don't know if there were some other, you know, contributing factors in the locker room that maybe I wasn't, you know, fully aware of at the time. Um, you know, that's when that's when Martin Mayhew and, and Tom Lawan, who were who were put in charge after the firing of, 
of Matt Millen, that's when they decided to go ahead and shelve Kitna for the season and just sort of let things play out with the other guys they had on board. Yeah, and as the years went by for the Lions, uh, they drafted four wide receivers in the first round in five years. And I think that may have been their way of trying to solve their quarterback problem. Uh, but what do you, uh, like, can you think of any time that, that this stretch has happened and uh, why, like, do you think it's any time at any time possible for someone to draft four wide receivers in the first round in today's NFL without getting fired? I mean, what, like, is that, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you're right. It, it was about trying to get weapons for your young quarterback, get the most of your young quarterback, and, you know, Matt being infatuated with a couple of the, the wrong guys, you know, Charles Rogers. Uh, you know, there were some off-field questions with him, and, and, you know, he was a local product, and I think, you know, I think as you look back, it's more about who the Lions passed on, right? Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. They passed on Andre Johnson to take Charles Rogers. You know, they passed on DeMarcus Ware to take Mike Williams. I mean, it was those guys that you look back now, and the Lions had high grades on those guys. They made the wrong picks, and, and especially DeMarcus Ware. That was a guy the Lions were ready to take. Yeah. And, and the guy they should have taken, and Matt Millen has said multiple times that he just, I don't know, had some epiphany in the draft room where he said Mike Williams, and everybody was like, what? You know, and, and I mean, somebody else, I think there were some, some other people um, within the organization, coaches or whoever, um, who were on the Mike Williams train, and, and, and Matt just wasn't strong enough as an executive to say, nope, DeMarcus Ware is our guy. And he was swayed, and he found himself saying DeMarcus Ware, or he found himself saying Mike Williams, and it's bad drafting that really led to that miserable decade of the 2000s for the Lions. One of those wide receivers worked out, luckily, though, of being Calvin Johnson And after the 2006 season. He turned out to be one of the greatest wide receivers of all time during that stretch that he had. Um, but So the team is, is halfway built through draft picks and um, not a lot, of, not a lot of, of star talent on the team, but not a terrible team. 2007, like you said, they went 7-9. and nine. Um, And then that's when a lot of the, well, I mean, it had been starting for a couple years, but a lot of people had been hoping that Matt Millen would get sacked. Uh, There started, basically at every Michigan sports game that you went to, there was some sort of fire Millen sign. Uh, And then, but nothing seemed to be, nothing seemed to happen. I mean, fans were looking hopeful at the end of the season being seven and nine, and they they ended up drafting uh, Gazer Shareless, a tackle, uh, so shaking up the wide receiver game in the draft that year, uh, going into 2008, what what was the expectation for the team? What did you think was a realistic record for them to get based off of what you'd seen in the previous seasons? Yeah, you mentioned the fire mill and a million sucks chance and the Millman March. I mean, it really was building up for some time. But, you know, as I mentioned, that 2007 season, even though – you know, even though they, they finished on a terrible note, they, they still won seven games. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they started 6-2. and two. So, you know, again, I don't think anyone foresaw 0-16 or not even the, the depths that they had reached, you know, early on that decade. I, I don't think anyone expected a 2-14 and 14 type season or 3-13. and 13. But, you know, you're thinking six wins, you know, somewhere, somewhere in that neighborhood probably. Um, because, again, as you, you sort of look around the locker room, you're right. You have, Kevin, you have uh, Calvin Johnson. Uh, you know, the Lions had sold it as they, they had a running back, Kevin Smith. You know, they I think they spent a third-round pick on him. You know, you still had John Kitnett, quarterback. 
the defense wasn't great, certainly, but, um, you know, Rod Marinelli was the head coach, and you're expected maybe, you know, a defensive guy gets a little more out of the defense. So no one thought it was a playoff team, but no one thought it was going to be the worst team in NFL history either. And <laughs> I think the way that, that season started, I think they were close against the Pelicans in the first game, and then it was a couple blowouts in a row and a couple of those games at home. And that's when you sort of started to realize, like, well, this thing's, uh, this thing's not going to go well for the, the, the Lions this year. Yeah, and uh, there were reporters that asked Rod Marinelli uh, what his thoughts were for the upcoming season, and this is a, a quote from him. It might seem crazy, but I'm looking at this team five or ten years down the road, and it's filled with good young players from the draft. I'm percolating coffee here. I'm not making instant. Um, well, I mean, Rod Marinelli, you know, obviously didn't last the rest of the season, so he wasn't able to watch the team percolate, I guess, but we've we've made it to the 2008 season, so we're 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 ready to kick it off. Like you said, they faced a couple of blowouts in a row. Uh, they faced rookie Matt Ryan in the first game, and then they faced Aaron Rodgers in his first season as a starter. Uh, and then week three, they lost to J T. Sullivan, and this was this. <laughs> yeah, former line. Yeah, former lines J T. Sullivan, and after this game. That was when they fired Millen. Uh, overall, in this record, thirty-one and eighty-four. Um, do you mind just talking a little bit more about what that meant for the team now that Matt Millen was was officially fired after yep. so many years? Well, and you remember the uh, the Forty Nineers. I believe Mark, Mike Marks was their offensive coordinator at the time, and that's why J.T. O'Sullivan was the quarterback. And yeah, so it was you know it was, it was bad to start the year. You know, Ryan, the rookie, and they go for a big play early in that game. And I remember. Um, the day after the 49ers game, you know, at the 49ers game, it just, there was something that thank God, right? Like Tom Milan was down on the field and, um, you know, during the game on the sideline. And, um, I, I remember coming, flying back from that game and all the beat writers were on the same flight back that morning and we landed and this was, you know, it's kind of early in the, the stages of cell phones, right. Mm. And, and internet on your phone, but, yeah. but we landed and, I remember there was somebody a, a row or two behind me. Tom Kowalski was um, he was a beat writer for the, for M Live at the time, and he was sitting like exit row, and I was right in front of him. And there was a guy that was either next to Tom or the row behind him that flipped on his phone, and he was like, "Oh, what? The Lions fired Matt Millen? Like we all got off the plane?" And or maybe I'm sorry, maybe they didn't fire Millen. That was when Bill Ford Jr. made the comments. He was at some function, and he said, "You know, we need to fire Matt Millen, or oh. it's time for a change, something to that effect." Mm -hmm. And that's when we all were like, "We what? Like, all right, Bill Ford Jr. is coming out strong, like trying to force his dad's hand and make this happen." And that was the end of it, right there. Like we all knew right at that minute that that it was it was done. You know, Matt Millen was going to get fired. And it happened, I believe, the next night, Tuesday night, and they kept it quiet till the next morning. Um, but yeah, it was. It, I just I distinctly remember that moment that all the beat writers were on the same flight, and Bill Ford Jr. had made his comments that they, it was time to move on from Matt Millen, and we all just sort of knew what was going on. And it was a later news conference that day, and I raced to the the, the facility for it. And, you know, I think um, we had pretty much missed the news conference but i remember talking to rod marinelli after that news conference just briefly and he just it seemed like you know he kind of knew something was up or he was in a little bit of a state of of you know paranoia of watching over his, his back because he knew that, that things could be going down mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then the next week uh, was when they decided to put – or they, they took John Kitna out of the game, and he was replaced by Dan Orlovsky. Um, but it didn't seem like Kitna was really believing that he was actually injured. In an interview with WJRAM, he said they wanted to go in a different direction. And the, I guess the thing is for me, that's fine. Let's just say that. Uh, did you hear – Anything about rumblings about John Kitna not entirely being injured and them just wanting to try something new, or what? What was the situation behind that from from your perspective? Yeah, uh, just my memory a little bit here, but I, like I said, you know, early on, it, it was definitely look. John was 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 hurt, but it wasn't like you know he needed back surgery or something like that. He's laid up in traction. I mean, it was. I don't remember exactly what he was dealing with, slip disc, or there was something that he was dealing with that was impacting his play um but again i think the lions sort of looked at it like you know what this is our chance to move on from from john i mean he was a strong voice in the locker room um you know there were a lot of people that would go to his house every week for bible studies and um i think the the lions looked at it as a chance to move on from him somebody they knew wasn't going to be you know their quarterback of the future um they had a couple of young guys orlovsky who hadn't played much drew stanton uh, at the time um, and, you know, Orlowski, you mentioned that Vikings game. I think that was the game that he ran out of the back of the end zone. So mm-hmm. it's not like he had yep. this stellar debut. But the Lions just made the, the collective decision that, hey, John Kitten is not our guy. Let's put him on injured reserve, get this over with, move on. There was, you know, it was an injury that was going to keep him out a couple weeks. If he would have played through it, he wouldn't have been, you know, very good. He was back on the golf course later on in the season. So uh, to suggest that he had a season-ending injury, um, of, of any legitimacy, I don't think anyone would, would be saying that right now. Yeah, and uh, they did decide to go in the direction of Dan Orlovsky. And, I mean, I have a lot of love for Dan Orlovsky. Being a Colts fan, um, he's the only thing that kept us from being one of those own 16 teams during uh, that really tough season when Curtis Painter was our quarterback. Uh, but Dan Orlovsky, obviously a much younger guy. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying he's, he's a pro. You know, he's look. He's, he's obviously not Andrew Luck or uh, you know Patrick Mahomes, but he's a smart guy. He's a pro in the locker room. Oh so, yeah, so yeah. My teams like them. No, yeah, no question. Uh, but like you said, during that first game, ran out of the back of the end zone uh, on a, from a play on the one yard line for a safety, um, and that's not the toughest part of it. Uh, the toughest part is that the Lions actually lost by two points on a game-winning field goal with nine seconds left. So that play, I mean, is probably one of the worst in recent memory but it also you know prevented what would have been an overtime game to turning into a, a two-point loss and then calvin johnson yeah. in in the next season or in, in the next game uh caught a 96 yard touchdown pass which is probably would be the highlight of the entire line season uh can you talk a little bit about how calvin johnson was still able to put up big numbers even though he had a lot of young, inexperienced guys throwing to him? Yeah, you know, I was I looked at the stats, actually, and I saw that Kelvin had a 96-yard catch, and I, didn't, I don't remember it, frankly, but um, <laughs> 12 touchdowns that year, 1,300 yards. I don't think anybody else had even, like, 400 yards receiving. So, obviously, he's the only weapon of, of any, you know, sort that they had on the team. And, mm. again, you know, I don't, I don't remember teams doing this, but you'd have to think that, you know, teams are concentrated you know, 100% on stopping him and for him to still put up those numbers. Granted, you know, they're in some comeback situations and, and blowouts and they're throwing the ball around a little bit. But it, he did it because...
because you know he's a freak. I mean, he, look, I'm a Hall of Fame voter. You know, I'm the the guy that'll be responsible for um, you know stating his case. I guess presenting him to the the room when we vote on him in two years, and I think he's a, a slam dunk because. You know, you look at the quarterbacks that he played with early in his career, you know, whether it was John Kitna or, you know, Drew Stanton or, you know, uh, Dan Orlovsky, uh, Dante Culpepper, even an early Matthew Stafford, Sean Hill. I mean, that's half of his career right there that he played with, and he mm. still was, was one of the most dominant receivers in the game. I mean, he was just freakish in size and athletic ability and his, his ability to run. Um, he's a very unique talent, and as you look back on that, that season, you know, Kevin Smith actually, he almost ran for a thousand yards in that year, so he probably had a, a decent season. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was Calvin Johnson. He was their only, their only real shining light on offense that year. So I'm going to go ahead and fast forward to week nine because that was the first week that Dante Culpepper started. Uh, so after a very successful few years with the Minnesota Vikings, uh, he bounced around from team to team, dealt with a lot of injuries retired and then eventually came out of retirement uh to play for the lions um and what was what was the overall belief uh, of what dante culpepper could do obviously he'd been retired for a year but did many people think that he was going to be able to lead the lions to just at least you know at least one victory no not at all i mean i think <laughs> you know he came in and he was coaching the sun's football team at the time and you know flag football if i remember correctly and Regardless, he was coaching the Suns football team, and he came in overweight. And I don't, I don't know that anyone ever said what he was, but look, if, if, if he if he was pushing 300 at the at a minimum, you know, oh. he was not in any sort of football shape. And you know, I, I I know what the Lions were trying to do, right? They were had some young guys that just were, you know, they they weren't very good at the time. They were very raw with everything they were doing. You know, Stan, I think they drew Henson on the team for a minute. Um, mm. You know, so they just didn't. There was there was nothing at the quarterback position, and they wanted to have some sort of veteran part. They realized that maybe they were on track to, you know, go 0 and 16, and they didn't want that stain on them. And so they were they were trying, I guess, you know, they were trying to get some sort of veteran in there who might be able to to lead the guys. But I don't think anyone um, at that time, other than the people who had the who were holding up the, the biggest levels of hope, really thought Dante Culpepper was any sort of answer. And you know what, maybe, you know, at the end of the season, I mean, you're, you know, there's a, a few teams on your schedule, I guess, that probably aren't, you know, very good at the time. And so maybe the hope is that, you know, uh, he could catch lightning in a bottle. But no, when you, when Culpepper came in the locker room, I don't think anyone all of a sudden looked around and said, hey, our season is safe. And <laughs> turned out to be shocked at what happened at the end of the year. Yeah, and then in weeks 10 and 11, um, they played decently well. They were within two points of the 8-2 and two Panthers in the fourth quarter. Uh, and then against the 8-3 and three Bucks in week 11, they scored 17 points in the first and then got outscored 38-3 to three the rest of the game. But week week 10, uh, this is probably my favorite quote ever. I just I found it recently. Uh, Rod Marinelli, uh, after a reporter's question uh, asking about, obviously, the team struggles because that's what most of them asked about, he said, I'm not 0-10, you're 0-10. Uh, were you in the, the press room at that time when that happened? And, uh, yeah, can you just provide some more context for how that quote came about? Oh, man, I wish I remember that quote. I mean, I, I certainly would have been there um, if, if he said that in some sort of, you know, news conference setting. But I don't remember that. I mean, what that year was, you know, there's there's obviously some 
some untold stories of that year. I remember, you know, after one game, Rod Marinelli sort of, and I don't remember what game it was, but, you know, he, he called, like, all the beat reporters into, like, the coach's office at whatever room or whatever, you know, stadium we were at. Mm-hmm. And it, he was sort of, like, mad that we were, like, weren't really, like, aggressively going after him that game and questioning him. Like, we had sort of, like, given up on the season. Like, oh, all right, they, they stink, you know? And he was like, why aren't you guys, like, asking me harder questions? Like, go after me harder, you know? Like, <laughs> like he just it, – it was one of those things where it was – where I think he sensed the resignation from us, and we had already sensed that this team was, you know, you know steaming towards 0-16, and he didn't want – you know that to happen he wanted to you know he, he he insisted on fighting all year and he took the resignation from us as like everyone's giving up on him and so it was i don't remember the, the quote that that you you know had but uh, yeah it was, there was some weird stuff that you rudy johnson tatum bell you know that was when tatum bell stole rudy johnson's luggage after they brought him in mm-hmm. um you know and got got you know uh you know, fired from the team essentially after that, and it was yeah, there was it was a weird year looking back. It was uh, I mean amazing to have to cover an 16 team. Like I said, there was you know you looked around the locker room and there just wasn't you know the talent wasn't quite up to par. But it was some good guys in the locker room, and truthfully, that's that's why you kind of you felt bad and you were as much as you don't root as a reporter, you were kind of hoping that they didn't have to go through that at the end of the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we kind of close here, I mean the rest of the rest of the season, it was just a lot of blowouts and uh, just tough, tough game after tough game. Uh, do you mind just telling me where, in your opinion, this team stacks up with uh, the the Browns? You know, the 20, 2017 Browns that also went zero and sixteen. Um, as far as talent overall, you know, team character, that sort of thing. What do you see uh, any similarities? I guess from what you watched during the season, or and in, in which team is worse? Well, God, which team is worse? That's, uh, I mean, if they had a playoff, it'd be, uh, I mean, the Browns, they, they went through their own stretch, obviously, 1-15 and 0-16, and and so yeah. they were they were pretty rotten there, too, for a minute. But, you know, they had some young talent. I mean, I don't think the Browns had a talent like Kelvin, you know, not offensively, yeah. at least. And Josh Gordon, I think, played briefly for that 0-16 team. But, you know, they didn't have a, a player like Kelvin. So, in terms of, of pure um, talent, you know, maybe the Lions had the edge and when it when it was the um, you know, the, the elite players, maybe the Browns had a little more talent overall. I kinda wanna say that. You know, I, I remember watching the Browns a little bit that year and and uh, you know, they had if I remember right, they had a couple close games, right? Didn't they? Yeah. They played mm-hmm. the Titans and the Jets or there were, there were a couple close games that they had in the middle of the season. Um, look, it's it, for my money, because I saw it up close um, I would probably say the Lions were the, the worst team in NFL history. Um, but anytime you go 0-16, you're in pretty darn exclusive company. And, yeah. you know, as I look back on that, that Lions team from 2008, um, you know, a collection of, of good guys, you know, people who I think wanted to do the right thing, um, you know, from the coach on down. I mean, Rod Marinelli, you know, his final press conference of the year, you know, he was all about football. And after that, that Packers game when they lost, he, he came in and he started his news conference like he does every other one. And he said, you know, all right, our injuries for the day, like he sort of rattled off his injury report. And, uh, you know, he, he knew. He even had a, a news conference when he got fired the next day. And he, he knew what was coming. And, um, you know, I 
don't think anyone wanted to, to live with that stigma. And I remember talking to some guys, you know, every year when the Colts did it, when the Colts were close, when the, the Browns were close, you'd always go back and talk to guys from the 0-16 team. And, uh, you know, they you know, they would tell you. I mean, I distinctly remember talking to Don Muehlbach about that and saying, I don't want him saying, I don't want to have anyone, you know, have to go through it because, you know, what I went through. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a certain guy... Dominic Raiola, you know, he would he would be the one that said, heck yeah, I want other people to go through it because I don't want to be the only one that's looking at <laughs> 16 on me. But um, most everybody else would say, you know, I don't want anyone to have to go through that. And, you know, just sort of looking at why they did it, I don't know that there was a, a good reason other than, you know, the, the kidney situation and the overall talent on the team. And so from that standpoint, I would say the Lions were, were probably, the 2008 Lions were probably the worst team well, on on that joyous note, uh, I think we've we've come out run out of time. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Dave, for coming on. It's been great to talk to you and get your perspective on the 2008 Lions. Absolutely, man. Happy to do it. And uh, like I said, you know, it was a collection of good guys. It was just uh, not a collection of good football players. Yeah, definitely. Well. Guys, thank you for listening to this episode. You can check out episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, So we'll see you next time.